Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Three indictments against the Federal Reserve. You know, I want to make this video as sort of a primer explaining what I have against the Federal Reserve. What the end the Fed or audit the Fed movement has against the Federal Reserve. And I think this is applicable to many central banks around the world. What the Fed does is not unique. In fact, in, in some cases, it may not be as bad as what other major central banks, such as the European Central Bank or the Bank of Japan do in terms of carrying out monetary policy. And I think this would also serve as an excellent resource for individuals that maybe don't understand why people are not a fan of the Federal Reserve or what they do and are maybe just becoming curious or maybe you've talked to them in the past about the Fed and then you see their eyes maybe glaze over or or they just don't quite understand. Well, if you're one of those people listening to this, I want to help you understand why so many people are not a fan of the Federal Reserve and and I hope to to get you on board with this movement. You know, I think that the truth of the matter is that, you know, with the increasing polarity that that we've seen in politics as of late, um, people are involved politically, people have their opinions and and that's great to become more involved in the political process. However, on some topics such as the nuts and bolts of the economy or central banks or how monetary policy is carried out, people um uh, don't pay attention to that as much. Now, is that because our education system barely mentions it? I think that's part of it. The media certainly doesn't help. They they report very little on this, uh, with the exception of maybe the the financial media. But even then, I think they they don't uh, uh, carry through some of these bigger picture items. They they go month to month, week to week, in terms of Fed policy, without looking at the bigger picture of you know is the Fed as an institution a good thing or a bad thing. So, without further ado. Three indictments against the Federal Reserve. Number one, the theft of purchasing power. Call it what you want. Devaluation of the currency, inflation. But long story short, since the Federal Reserve was created in 1913, the U.S. dollar has lost upwards of 96-97% of its value. And I'll remind you that one of the Fed's key mandates is stable prices, which one would, it's not too much of a stretch to, to translate that to a stable currency. You can't have stable prices without a stable currency. And yet, <clears throat> during the, the existence of the Federal Reserve, we have seen the dollar lose 97% of its value. And yet, you know, what some of you may be thinking today is, well, you know, that was, you know, during the, the Great Depression, which actually saw deflation. Uh, more so than inflation during that period of time. Or that was during the 70s when we had high periods of inflation. I get it. We've had high periods of inflation in the past. But today, even 2%, 3% inflation, you have to understand that that is no different than an inflation tax. That eats away at your salary, at your savings. 
at your overall wealth, unless you're holding in some sort of an asset that appreciates with inflation, whether that's real estate or precious metals or some other type of asset that is appreciating along with inflation, your wealth has been eaten away. And I know, you know, some of you may be lucky enough to, to have yearly salary increases that, that follow inflation, or at least the officially stated inflation numbers, which I tend to think are, are understated. And you may not be damaged quite as much by it. However, you know, the data would show that in the last 10 years, despite unemployment steadily decreasing and, and currently being at very low levels, wage increases just haven't kept pace with inflation as a whole. People's uh, purchasing power today is lower than what it has been in the past, or at least that's the case for the vast majority of the population, the working class, the middle class. You know, maybe there's that 1%, that 10% that this might not quite apply to, um, but we'll get to them in a second. So that's number one indictment, um, theft of purchasing power, inflation. In fact, it's stated in their their goals of, of stable prices, but then they go on to say, basically, we're shooting for 2% inflation on a year-over-year basis, a 2% tax on every single dollar. People have to realize that's, that's theft. That's stealing from what you can do in terms of purchasing power, and yet it's stated within their overall goals. Number two, interruption of the normal business cycle. Now, once upon a time, you know, the idea of a boom and bust cycle was fairly easy to understand. You could see it play out over a five-year or a 10-year period. You know, it varies from country to country, from economy to economy. But basically, you know, the gist of it was that um, over time, you would see asset prices move up and then down. You'd see unemployment move up and move down. You'd see, you know, these different indicators of, of economic activity or well-being of the economy move up and down based on, you know, psychology of, of the market. Um, you'd, you'd move from fear of an investment or or fear of risk early on in a business cycle or right after a recession. But over time, that fear would go away. You'd have, instead of fear of investing going forward in a business or, or an economy, you would have instead um, malinvestment, right? And, and over time, debt would accumulate and then that bubble would be popped, right? A normal business cycle. And yet the Fed has in... <coughs> And yet the Fed has interrupted that normal business cycle, instead seeking to replace it with with what we would call a credit cycle, a synthetic credit cycle. Using their tools, they've replaced that with the goal of increasing debt to continue the business cycle, continue the, the economic growth, period of economic growth versus a recession. Now, that might not seem that bad on the surface. Uh, you might be thinking, you know, what, what's the big deal here? They're basically seeking to, to avoid a recession, avoid an economic downturn. Nobody likes those periods of time. People can keep their jobs, their houses, their livelihoods for a longer period of time. So what's the big deal here? Well, the problem is that when you try to delay the normal business cycle, when you try to delay a recession by increasing Debt by driving economic growth through increasing debt, and the Fed has a variety of ways to do that, including you know lowering interest rates or through quantitative easing. When you do that, 
first of all, it's it's like stretching a, sp- a spring out, right? If you stretch it, you know, halfway to its limit and then release it, okay, it's pretty predictable, you know, how much that it's going to spring back, what the velocity or, or the violence of that spring is going to be. Well, what the Fed is doing is stretching it to its limit. Now, eventually, it's going to snap back. But the longer you stretch it, the longer you delay the recession, the worse it's going to be. Now, the Fed, and I think many central banks are of the opinion that maybe they can keep this going indefinitely. You know, we're, we're looking at, what, like a 10-year expansion now. Maybe they can keep it going 15 years, 20 years. Why not? And yet, over the long term, when central banks have sought out that goal, and we've seen it in the past 10 years, the end result is, yes, maybe they avoid a technical recession, but what you get instead is stagnation. Instead of periods of, of recession and then great economic growth, you get very little economic growth, very little wage growth. And, you know, through tools like interest rate uh, policy, lowering their their interest rates or quantitative easing or other policies that the Fed uses, you get you end up with nasty side effects like currency devaluation, the population saving less and less money because there's less incentive to do so. Um, governments in many cases uh, going on spending sprees and, and massive debt increases at every level of the economy, at, at the consumer level, at corporations and companies, and of course, the nation, right? Look at the U.S. national debt today, north of $22 trillion. The Fed and their insistence on avoiding a recession has played a role in that. It's not a good thing. Over the short term, like it can be a very powerful tool. Right, whether we're talking about a, a political party, let's let's stave off a recession until after an election cycle. Well, then then that 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 party doesn't have to deal with a recession. Their their voters uh, are not going to be upset about losing their job or their friends losing their job or their house, right? And so they're more li- more likely to be reelected. Um, but over the long term, it's very damaging to an economy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And it's very risky because what is going to be the blowback? Is the next recession going to be even worse because they pushed it off further off into the future? Finally, indictment number three, increasing the wealth disparity here in the United States. Now, I don't want to get too political here because I want this to be a message that will be received reasonably well by Republicans or Democrats or independents or centrists or libertarians or whatever. But, you know, there are some would say that would say that, you know, <clears throat> the wealth disparity that we've seen in, in the United States that is always increasing is the result of corporatocracy, corporations moving into to uh, uh, a closer and closer relationship with the U.S. government. And that's how they've enriched themselves. I would say, yes, that's partially true. Some have said that the solution to this is to redistribute the wealth, to tax the rich. I would, you know, disagree with that and instead propose that perhaps 
one of the underlying factors for why wealth disparity has increased so much in the last 10 years is none other than the Federal Reserve. When you break it down, when you look at the policies that they undertake, as I said before, they can serve the purpose of extending a period of economic expansion. And so many people don't notice because they haven't lost their job yet. They haven't lost their house yet. Yes, wages aren't quite keeping up. They notice that they have less less and less left after each paycheck on, on a year-over-year basis. But as a whole, it's not a full-blown crisis, and so they don't quite notice it. But by doing that, by using these different tools, they're increasing the wealth disparity between the 99% and the 1%. So how do they do this? Well, first of all, you, cl- you can look at things like interest rates. Low interest rates disproportionately benefit the wealthy. Why is that the case? Well, it's the wealthy that disproportionately hold more debt or assets that have been bought with that. For example, real estate. You might be watching this video and you might have a mortgage, maybe 100000 left on it, 200, you know, 500000 And yet the 1%, they're the ones that are holding mortgages or similar types of debt or lines of credit that might be in the millions. And so, yes, maybe you benefit from these lower interest rates in the sense that you have a lower payment. You can refinance at a lower rate. But think of how much more benefit is being given to the 1% that is holding significantly more debt than you are. And that's just one example. How about we look at the stock market? Now, many people, including myself, would argue that the Fed has used the, the goal of, of keeping the stock market afloat as a guide to what to do in terms of monetary policy. Basically, you look at things like lowering interest rates or quantitative easing, and you notice that you know when the Fed is being accommodative, the stock market tends to rise. Who owns the vast majority of stocks in the United States? It's the rich. It's, it's not the working class. It's not the middle class. They have some exposure, maybe, whether it's through a 401k, an IRA, you know, pension funds invest heavily in stocks. You know, those types of, of, of retirement tools, those are invested in stocks. And so if the stock market goes up by 100%, yeah, the middle class, maybe even the working class, they're going to have some exposure to that. They're going to benefit from that to some extent. But they're not the ones holding the vast majority of stocks. It's the very rich. The rich get richer and the poor get poor or just stay steady or they just see a steady erosion of things like purchasing power and wealth, etc. And yet there hasn't been some massive downturn in the last 10 years. And so people carry on. They, they notice something isn't right, but they can't quite always put their finger on it. Again, Fed, the Fed disproportionately benefits the wealthy. You, you can even look beyond just how they have sought the, the goal of, of moving the stock market in an upward direction, an upward trajectory, and how that, that disproportionately uh, benefits the rich. You can also look at things like stock buybacks. This is kind of the dirty secret about the stock market over the last uh, several years, especially 2018. Who has been buying U.S. stocks? I mean, yes, if you look at the numbers, I'm sure you'd find that you have the usual culprits, pension funds, hedge funds, um, even foreign investors, whether it's foreign 
uh, institu- uh, companies or even foreign uh, like central banks or wealth funds. You have individual investors. You have all of that. But also, a major player in the stock market in the last 10 years has been corporations. Buying back their own stock. Stock buybacks. Maybe you've heard the term before. Those are, in many cases, enabled by low interest rate policies. Companies literally take on debt to buy back their own stock and pump up their own stock price. It makes their company look like it's doing really well, when in reality, they're, again, just taking on debt to buy back their own stock. And yet, if interest rates, if interest rates were at a higher percentage, then that would not be as attractive of a policy or, or a, a um, way to, to try and make your company look like it's doing well because borrowing all that money would be more expensive. And again, when they pump up their stock prices, who is it that benefits disproportionately? It's the wealthy. And finally, you know, the dirty secret about the Federal Reserve is if you look at who serves on the Federal Reserve Board of members, whether it's the chairman or, you know, not necessarily the chairman in this case, but certainly the other board members, you'll find that, you know, as a whole, to make a gross generalization, many of them have connections to the finance sector, which wouldn't be surprising. We're talking about a central bank here. But when you look a little deeper, you'll find that many of them are ex-board members on uh, uh, major commercial banks like Goldman Sachs, right? And the Federal Reserve has a very close connection with the financial sector, with these large commercial banks. And time and time again, especially in the last 10 years, have undergone policies that have benefited these large banks. It's, it's a conflict of interest. There's a serious problem here with the Federal Reserve. I mean, it's, it's no different than, than when, you know, maybe people would criticize like the Trump administration for maybe putting a big oil guy in charge of the Department of Energy. Is there conflict of interest there? Well, maybe he's an expert on the matters, but is he, you know, is there conflict there? I don't know. I mean, it's, it'd be no different than if, if you took a, a uh, Department of Defense, the, the Secretary of Defense, and you put, I don't know, the ex-CEO of Boeing or Lockheed Martin, right? A defense corporation in that position. Is that conflict of interest? Well, they're an expert on planes and maybe they know a fair amount of defense uh, 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 data or, or, or have a fair base of knowledge. But, you know, are they going to conduct policy that has the goal of boosting profits for the company that they used to work for? Are there insider deals here? There's some huge problems here, huge conflicts of interest at the Federal Reserve. And remember, the Federal Reserve maybe I haven't stated this yet, is responsible for the creation of our money. They're responsible for the lending of money to commercial institutions. They're responsible for setting interest rates that they lend to these institutions at. They buy a massive amount of bonds and mortgage-backed securities on the open market, or at least they have in the past. They're they're still trying to slowly get rid of them, um, ultimately having failed. That's a whole other topic. But they are an immensely powerful institution. Money is so powerful and those that can have control over the money supply, the, the printing presses essentially, have an enormous amount of power. And these types of conflicts of interests, it's not hard to see why there's some serious risk there. So, you know, I hope that this has been a decent summary for, for why 
the Federal Reserve is problematic. Never mind the fact that um, they oftentimes are ineffective in stopping recessions. Never mind the fact that you know some of the nuts and bolts of their policy um, and how they make that policy has major flaws. I'm not going to get into the details here. As a whole, the three major things that are wrong with the Fed are that they debase the currency. They cause inflation. That is theft. I mean, they're, they're stealing from savers, stealing from people that are holding dollars. Number two, they try to interrupt the normal business cycle, creating a synthetic uh, credit cycle that is going to and already has had some serious implications. And finally, they contribute to the wealth disparity problem. The rich get richer and the poor stay poor. The middle class gets squashed. They get squeezed out of, of the the broader picture. So I hope this has been uh, helpful. I hope this has been educational. And again, for my longtime viewers, for people that are just stumbling upon this, share it. Share it with your family members, your friends, people that are curious about this subject. You know, this, this idea, this po- po- political movement of getting rid of the Fed is not new. In fact, they purposely called themselves the Federal Reserve, despite not being federal or a reserve bank, really, um, for a reason. They didn't want the term central bank attached to their name because uh, when they were created in 1913, uh, the idea of a central bank was, was not a popular idea in many circles. This is not a new movement against central banks, and yet I think it's one that has waxed and waned over time, and I think it's about time that it enters into the political discussion again. Now, I mean, thankfully, our our president has brought some attention to it. Not to say I agree with what he's saying, but if nothing else, hopefully maybe that encourages some people to to look into to uh, what the Fed is. Who is this Jerome Powell that Trump is criticizing? Again, not saying that I agree with his criticisms of the Fed. I, I would, um, I, I, it's hard to say that I would agree or disagree because I, I see very differently than I think the average politician in terms of what the Fed should be doing or should they exist in the first place. But hopefully this political movement can can grow, that more people can realize that yeah, maybe there's something to be said for partisan politics. Maybe there's something to be said for this country versus that country. But let's look at the Federal Reserve and look at how they have damaged our society, damaged our economy over time. And maybe we should address this problem as well. Never mind just this bickering in in this partisan politics. Maybe this can become a bipartisan movement. I'm cynical. I mean, the Federal Reserve is a powerful institution. And as I said before, the media does not like to pick on them. But again, I hope you share this with your friends, your family members, and I hope that this has been educational for you. So as always, I'd like to thank you guys from the bottom of my heart for listening to this discussion, this one person discussion. And as always, God bless.